A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 14. Marxism Metastasizes, the first part. American Marxists find a Trojan horse and the Frankfurt School marries Marx with Freud in critical theory. First section. Collapse of the USSR exposes the evils of Marxism. With the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the web of Soviet secrecy began to unravel. Already in 1973, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's monumental The Gulag Archipelago had exposed the evil of the Soviet prison camp system and the ruthless regime that fed it with victims. In the 1990s, for the first time, international researchers were able to explore the archives of the Central Committee of the Communist Party and the Politburo, the Comintern and some of the security agencies. These documents confirm the cruel callousness of the Soviet leadership's decision-making, its support and manipulation of Communist parties throughout the world, and its exploitation of naive Western individuals, organizations and governments who took the Soviets at their word when they said they believed in peaceful coexistence, detente and nuclear disarmament. For Americans, Long-held assumptions about extensive Soviet espionage in their country during the World War II era were generally confirmed by the U.S. government's 1995 public release of the Venona Cables. Venona was the code name for a secret project to decrypt cables between Moscow and its secret agents in the United States. Started in 1943, it would provide valuable proof of espionage activities by the CPUSA, its network of underground members, and many of the individuals who had been engaged in spying, such as Alger Hiss and the Rosenbergs. Even for faithful Marxists, the mountain of evidence that came to light after the collapse of the Soviet Union could not be ignored. They had to admit that the USSR had been a monumental failure a macabre incarnation of Marxist theory. However, many thought the fault lay in the Soviet application of Marxism-Leninism and not in the theory itself. They wanted to believe that Marxism continued to have value and could be used beneficially to address social ills. They reasoned that the failure manifest in the Soviet Union lay primarily in Marxism-Leninism's focus on economics and politics at the expense of personal and social issues. The Frankfurt School, established in the 1920s, had already laid the groundwork for a new application of Marxism by combining it with Freudianism, a theory that enjoyed widespread acceptance in academia and society at large. They dubbed their approach critical theory. Several French scholars would later take critical theory further essentially rejecting the absolutes of science in favor of ascribing beliefs and theories to social influences, 
shaped largely by the language of dominant social groups. New section. But Marxism survives the demise of the Soviet Union. Thus the widely held belief that communism died and went to hell after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and that Marxism lost its relevance and appeal from that time, is not true. Marxism-Leninism, as a revolutionary and ruling ideology, is alive and well in China and a handful of small countries. In many respects, it is now a greater danger to the world than ever before because of China's great wealth, growing military prowess, and ever-increasing international aggression. Meanwhile, the ugly intellectual offspring of Marxism, known collectively as Neo-Marxism, continues to spread their poison throughout academia, infecting general education, mass media, government policies, and corporate decision-making. Marxism is not dead, it is very much alive. New section. Communism finds a home in the Democratic Party. There were thousands of communist and communist front organizations during the Cold War, some international, some national, and some local. Generally, they were formed with innocent-sounding names, such as the International Organization of Journalists, the IOJ, a united front tactic the communists used to recruit support from people who would not consider themselves socialists or communists, but generally agreed with the aims of the front organizations. Most of these groups folded with the collapse of the Soviet Union, but some merged with other groups or morphed into new entities that continued to pursue Marxist-Leninist or Maoist objectives. For example, in America, the new communist movement, the NCM, of the 1960s and 70s included groups like the Organization for Revolutionary Unity, the ORU, which was itself formed from a merger of the Committee for a Proletarian Party, the CPP, and the Communist Organization Bay Area, Koba. In 1986, the ORU and other elements of the NCM became part of the Freedom Road Socialist Organization, the FRSO, which is still active today. The result of decades of this splintering, merging and renaming of communist and communist front organizations has resulted in the creation of a plethora of organizations that have Marxist or neo-Marxist roots, but which often hide the fact. Some are linked directly or indirectly to the Communist Party of China, the CCP. Many advocate for ostensibly worthy causes, such as justice, human rights, worker rights, minority rights, etc. The Communist Party USA, which barely survived a great loss of members when Khrushchev revealed some of the evils of Stalin in 1956, switched its allegiance from Moscow to Beijing after the Soviet Union collapsed. Since then, it has become a tool of the CCP and actively promotes the radicalization of the Democratic Party. Indeed, the communist strategy in America is to use the Democratic Party as a Trojan horse to infiltrate its radical agenda into the American mainstream. Thus, the Communist Party USA no longer puts forward its own candidates for election, such as Gus Hall, who ran for the presidency four times, but now works to get Democratic Party candidates elected. 
There are dozens of radical left organizations doing similar work. Typically, they target minority communities, exploiting resentment to stir up anger and action, protesting, rioting, and looting, as well as harassing targeted individuals, groups, and institutions, all the while promoting radical Democratic Party candidates who claim they can address minority grievances, something they never actually do. Black Lives Matter and Antifa are two of these groups that are well known and are discussed in some detail in Chapter 16. However, most of the groups are not widely known at all. Appendix 18 has a list of 100 of these groups. To take over America, the communists are working from an old playbook, use democratic elections to gain power, and then replace authentic democracy with democratic centralism in a one-party state. The American version of that strategy is to control enough blue states to win every presidential contest and keep a majority in both the Senate and House. If successful, this will make America a de facto one-party nation. Reaching that destination starts at the local level by getting Democrats elected as city, county, and state representatives. The next goal is national elections. Prime targets are major red and purple states, like Texas, Virginia, Georgia, and Florida, which through this process can be turned blue. In addition to funding flowing from the CCP, many of these organizations receive very significant funding from wealthy individuals. George Soros and Mark Zuckerberg come to mind, and corporations that either benefit from big government alignment with business or that don't want to be targeted by radicals. Some of these backers are members of Democracy Alliance, which claims to raise over $100 million a year for progressive causes. This strategy is proving successful. The old Democratic Party was patriotic and fundamentally aligned with America's founding values. It enjoys support from a broad cross-section of American society, and many of its leaders, like Presidents Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy, were strong opponents of communism. No more. The party today presents itself as a patriotic champion of American values, but its policies tell a different story. Increasingly, it is becoming the home of radical left ideologies and the instrument to translate those ideologies into government policies and programs that are causing enormous damage to America's traditional principles and institutions. If it is allowed to achieve its ambitions, a radicalized Democratic Party will bring permanent change to America. That change will be for the worse, making America a big government state with few personal freedoms that is unable to maintain its role as a global champion of liberty. A new section. Marxist threads run through neo-Marxist offshoots. There are several theoretical threads connecting Marxism with its neo-Marxism offshoots. These threads are rooted in the nature, attitudes, and actions of Cain, including his envy towards Abel, his resentment towards God and Abel for the divine order of creation, his refusal to take responsibility for his own situation, his desire to dominate Abel, and his use of violence to achieve his objective. Thus, the core ideas of both Marxism and Neo-Marxism, dialectical materialism and critical theories, 
share several attributes. They both feed on envy and resentment towards the more fortunate and successful. They are anti-private property and anti-capitalist. They both reject the order of creation, in particular the nuclear family established by a supreme being. They both refuse to take responsibility for their own situations and blame others for their difficulties. And they both believe the world develops through conflict between opposites rather than cooperation between complementarities, a view that justifies violent destruction of the existing order by the aggrieved. Intrinsic to these theories is their shared belief that human consciousness, reason and beliefs are the product of physical and social conditions. As articulated in the Communist Manifesto, and I quote, does it require deep intuition to comprehend the man's ideas views and conceptions, in one word, man's consciousness, changes with every change in the conditions of his material existence, in his social relations and in his social life." End quote. This is the essence of the materialist answer to the religious view that human existence originated with the incarnation of divine attributes in the substance and form of man and woman. Without belief in a creator, human beings are alienated from their roots and endlessly seek to explain their existence in humanistic and materialistic terms. The pursuit of truth is undoubtedly laudable, but when its assumptions are faulty, the results can only be faulty as well. This explains why dialectical materialism and critical theory produce endless deconstructive explanations of history and society but never succeed in increasing human wisdom. On the contrary, they produce more confusion and conflict. A new section, an inexcusable continued embrace of socialism. It is truly remarkable that anyone who knows the history of the 20th century or is familiar with the socialist and communist countries today, such as China, Cuba and Venezuela, can advocate for socialism or communism in any incarnation. Yet as we showed in chapter 12, a large percentage of young people in America and elsewhere think that socialism is a good thing and preferable to capitalism. These are not young people who grew up in Bedouin tents in the Sahara, straw huts in Africa, or Brazilian slums. They were raised in the freest and wealthiest country ever to exist. How could they possibly want to see their country become a Venezuela, Cuba, China or North Korea? The answer is that the Pied Pipers of Socialism are themselves inexcusably ignorant or outright liars. The academic avatars of critical theory insist that they long since divorce themselves from Marx and have a whole new solution to the problems of injustice and inequality. Not true. This deception needs to be identified and debunked. The way that Marxism has metastasized into seemingly endless shades of neo-Marxism needs to be tracked and exposed. Critical theories are creating societal chaos at an unprecedented level and threaten to undermine the good that has been achieved through the evolution of personal freedom and representative government based on Judeo-Christian teachings and the spread of capitalism. Allowed to fester and spread further, they will cause inestimable damage to the world. 
They must be stopped and replaced with morally sound ideology. New section. Religion's failings do not justify its destruction. Thus, while Marxism and critical theories are able to identify inadequacies in religion and religion-based culture, they are unable to offer a better understanding of our existence and the world. It is irrational to destroy an existing set of ideas and cultural norms if you don't have a better one to replace them. But that is precisely what dialectical materialism and critical theories do through the process of deconstruction. After all, so long as humans are imperfect, their beliefs and ideas will be imperfect too. Thus religion should be understood as a work in progress. There is no justification for trying to destroy it because of its imperfections and incompleteness. A wise approach is to recognize religion's shortcomings, learn from its past mistakes, and find ways to improve it. This rational approach has historically been frustrated by condemnation of religious critics as heretics by ecclesiastical authorities, stifling legitimate ideas and suppressing movements of reform. Nevertheless, the outright condemnation of religion itself has been even more harmful to humanity, as the record of Marxism shows. New section. Major Neo-Marxist Theories and Movements Although we have already touched on several neo-Marxist movements, they have come to supersede Marxism in their ability to wreak havoc in societies around the world and therefore need a much closer look. In this chapter, we delve into the critical theory of the Frankfurt School and in the next two chapters, we examine the many harmful critical theories of postmodernism. New section, the Frankfurt School and critical theory. One of the earliest and most important of the neo-Marxist scholarly endeavors was concentrated at the Institute for Social Research at the Goethe University in Frankfurt. Here in the 1920s and 1930s, a group of academics who had for a decade been developing what they would call critical theory sought to influence social theory. Among the notable names associated with this school were Max Hochheimer, Theodor Adorno, Wilhelm Reich, Eric Fromm, and Herbert Marcuse. Members of the Frankfurt School were influenced by Freud's theories of repression, seeing in them a theory analogous with Marx's analysis of classes oppression, as in the oppression of the proletariat by the bourgeoisie. However, they believed that culture was not part of the Marxist superstructure, but a separate force influencing society. They used critical theory to attack virtually all established cultural institutions, including the family, employing the Marxist practice described by Arthur Kussler as dialectical interpretation of the facts. Max Hochheimer explained it this way. Critical theory is, and I quote, suspicious of the very categories of better, useful, appropriate, productive, and valuable as those are understood in the present order, end quote. Indeed, as elaborated by the Frankfurt School, critical theory would prove a handy tool for deconstructing traditional social institutions, thereby negating the values they embodied. As with dialectical materialism, 
It provided a theoretical basis for analyzing the constituents of conflict in society, isolating them, and then attacking the elements believed responsible for dysfunction and injustice. In practice, it meant that any ideas or institutions identified as enemies of progress should be subjected to criticism and elimination. Thus, critical theory leads to strident, often violent, opposition to non-progressive elements of society in the name of realizing a world aligned with the progressive ideals of an imaginary secular utopia. As we have noted, Marx himself had identified the traditional family as an oppressive institution of the bourgeoisie that needed to be destroyed. And in the early years of the Soviet Union, a free sex philosophy was tried in line with this Marxist theory. An article in the Atlantic of July 1926 by a woman resident in Russia is titled The Russian Effort to Abolish Marriage. It notes that, and I quote, when the Bolsheviki came into power in 1917, they regarded the family, like every other bourgeois institution, with fierce hatred and set out with a will to destroy it, to clear the family out of the accumulated dust of the ages we had to give it a good shake-up, and we did, declared Madame Smidovich, a leading communist. End quote. Madame Smidovich had written in Pravda in March 1925, and I quote again, Every member, even a minor of the Communist Youth League, and every student of the RABFAC, the Communist Party Training School, has the right to satisfy his sexual desire. This concept has become an axiom, and abstinence is considered a bourgeois notion. If a man lusts after a young girl, whether she is a student, a worker, or even a school-age girl, then the girl must obey his lust. Otherwise, she will be considered a bourgeois daughter, unworthy to be called a true communist." End quote. The Atlantic author describes the social chaos brought about by this free sex culture, where many young people had multiple partners, resulting in tens of thousands of children without homes. To address this problem, the Soviets simply abolished the notion of illegitimate children. The Atlantic author explains, and I quote, Men took to changing wives with the same zest which they displayed in the consumption of the recently restored 40% vodka, end quote. Divorces could be had in minutes, which is why a bill to end marriage altogether was being debated. However, with total social chaos looming, the bill was not passed. Instead, the Soviets reversed course and the family was reinstated as a source of social stability. With dialectical thinking, anything is possible. This history of disastrous anti-family policies did not deter the Frankfurt School and its scholars eagerly pursued their theories of sexual repression and the psychological and social problems they attributed to it. And while these writers generally believed that the Soviet Union was a failure, especially due to Stalin's reign of terror in the late 1930s, they retained the atheism, anti-capitalism and anti-family positions of Marxism. New section. 
Frankfurt's poison infects America and the world. With the arrival of Hitler, most of the Frankfurt School left Germany with several settling in the United States. The most prominent was Herbert Marcuse, whose writings would become popular in the mid-1960s when he became known as the father of the new left. In his book Critiquing Secular Humanism, author Morris Bowers looked closely at Marcuse's book Eros and Civilization. He noted that Marcuse argued, and I quote, that by freeing sex from any restraints, we could elevate the pleasure principle above the reality principle and create a society with no work, only play, end quote. Bowers further noted that Marcuse believed that the working class would not lead the revolution because it had become part of the middle class, the bourgeoisie. Their place would be taken by, a, and I quote again, a coalition of blacks, students, feminist women, and homosexuals, end quote. Marcuse also wrote that the new revolutionary groups opposed Western civilization, quote, with all the defiance and the hatred and the joy of rebellious victims, defining their own humanity against the definitions of the masters, end quote. Marcuse summed up his agenda, again I quote, one can rightfully speak of a cultural revolution. Since the protest is directed toward the whole cultural establishment, including the morality of existing society, what we must undertake is a type of diffuse and dispersed disintegration of the system, end quote. He supplemented this broad program of radical social deconstruction with a concept of partisan tolerance that is now all too prevalent in the left's cancel culture. He wrote that, and I quote, realization of the objective of tolerance would call for intolerance towards prevailing policies, attitudes, opinions, and the extension of tolerance to policies, attitudes, and opinions which are outlawed or suppressed, end quote. This is precisely the point of the cancel culture as we are experiencing it today. A new section, the destruction wrought by the sexual revolution. An Austrian writer, Wilhelm Reich, studied and worked with Freud. He sought to address his own sexual issues by combining Freudian and Marxist ideas and prescribed sexual liberation as the solution to neurosis. His 1936 book, The Sexual Revolution, was influential and provided a theoretical argument for a libertine lifestyle. Freud would later reject Reich's theories. In a taste of Reich's insights, he wrote this dismal evaluation of marriage, and I quote, Marital misery, to the extent to which it does not exhaust itself in the marital conflicts, is poured out over the children, end quote. In 1956, there was an influx of American Marxists into academia and influential organizations after tens of thousands of members of the CPUSA broke with the party out of disgust with Stalin when exposed by Khrushchev, as discussed in Chapter 12. Many of these Americans kept their Marxist faith and easily transferred their revolutionary interests to the critical theory movement brought to America by Marxist refugees from Nazism. Thus, Marxist refugees from Stalinism and Nazism 
provided fertile soil for leftist radicalism to take root in America during the 1960s. It was the work of Marcuse Reich et al. that provided a theoretical justification for the sexual revolution of the 1960s and played a major role in the American embrace of postmodernism. This French-based school of thought began to gain popularity in America in the late 1960s and is the dominant ideology of the left today. It has come to dominate social theory in American academia and much of the West. Together, these two branches of critical theories, the Frankfurt School and postmodernism, have transformed society in the West and many other parts of the world. In their critical theories, the religious values that make the relationship between a man and woman a sacred bond of love are seen as obsolete. Self-gratification in the name of personal liberation has taken their place. Avatars of the sexual revolution treated as if it was a scientific discovery of global and historical significance. In fact, so-called free sex theory is the intellectual rationalization of men and women seeking justification for their own unprincipled and destructive behaviors. There's nothing new about these practices at all. It is just that now we have academic courses explaining what an important advance in science and sexual revolution this represents. And we have a media and culture that embrace and promote it, despite the undeniable evidence of the enormously harmful effect the breakdown of traditional families has had on society, from increases in poverty and crime to a wide range of psychological problems. A new section. Alinsky codifies a radical program for the left. It is worth looking briefly at Saul Alinsky, the Pied Piper of the American left, who was politically active from the late 1930s to early 1970s. Born in 1909, he grew up in America when the Communist Party had made significant inroads, especially in labor unions, and through a network of agents and Soviet spies in the government. Alinsky helped organize unions within the labor giant CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, and raised funds for the Comintern's International Brigade that fought against Franco in Spain. But his primary interest was community organizing, working within less fortunate communities to get them to shake off the shackles of the capitalist system. Unlike Reich or Marcuse, he was a man of action who translated Marxist revolutionary theory into a program of radical change. His 1971 Rules of Radicals educated readers in how to leverage minority group grievances to bring about change. His was a classical Marxist approach of identifying targets for resistance, isolating and then attacking them, all as part of a program to wrest power from established capitalists, individuals and institutions. His work would prove influential. Presidential candidate Hillary Clinton wrote a college thesis on his writings, and President Obama followed him into community organizing. Here are his rules, and I quote, 1. Power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. 2. Never go outside the experience of your people. 3. Wherever possible, go outside of the experience of the enemy. 
4. Make the enemy live up to their own book of rules. 5. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. 6. A good tactic is one that young people enjoy. 7. A tactic that drags on too long becomes a drag. 8. Keep the pressure on. 9. The threat is usually more terrifying than the thing itself. 10. The major premise for tactics is the development of operations that will maintain a constant pressure upon the opposition. 11. If you push a negative hard and deep enough, it will break through into its counterside. 12. The price of a successful attack is a constructive alternative. 13. Pick the target, freeze it, personalize and polarize it. These prescriptions explain the tactics of the left, whatever the cause, from environmental movements to anti-racism and cancel culture. Perhaps the most used of all these rules is the last, the politics of personal destruction. Again and again the left slanders its enemies and again and again it is successful in shutting them up, getting them to resign, destroying their careers and lives. These Alinskyite principles for action are the inverse of a virtuous response to human differences. In what we call the way of Abel, a righteous response to a rival demonstrates firm resolve to oppose evil, but always seeks first to address inequities and injustices through peaceful means, take responsibility for the situation oneself to the greatest extent possible. Only after all such efforts have been made is the use of force on behalf of the vulnerable and defenseless justified. Alinsky tellingly dedicated his Rules for Radicals to Lucifer, and I quote, Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical, from all our legends, mythology and history. And who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which? the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. End quote. Yes, it was a Luciferian ideology that Alinsky used to promote revolution in America, an ideology used by social justice warriors to divide and radicalize society, to attack and destroy the traditional institutions that they hate. A new section. Zinn spreads Marxist lies about America. In 1980, Howard Zinn published A People's History of the United States, a Marxist polemic that paints the European settlers and America's founders, starting with Christopher Columbus and the Pilgrims, as rapacious, bloodthirsty capitalist conquerors and oppressive rulers. Cherry-picking sources and facts and omitting vitally important elements of the country's history, Zinn weaves a damning account of America as an oppressive and unjust nation on a par with Hitler's Germany. Incredibly, this fallacious account has been widely accepted in academia and is taught in many schools and universities where it is promoted by radical teachers and administrators. It is responsible for a whole generation of religion-hating and America-hating people on the left who embrace its cynical account and its justification for violent revolution 
by the groups it claims to be victims of the American monstrosity. In 2019, Mary Graeber came out with a comprehensive critique of Zinn's book, debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Graeber depicts Zinn as a fraud who lifted whole sections of others' work, almost verbatim, who ignored many of the most important events in American history and consistently interpreted the American story from a hostile Marxist perspective. A new section. Marxism in any form cannot succeed. From a religious perspective, Lucifer's rebellion and alienation from the Creator resulted in the first family being established under Satan instead of God. Thus a legacy of the fall is the pattern of evil preceding good, of a satanic imitation of the original ideal, usurping the true embodiment of divine love and truth. As we discussed in chapter 5, in history this pattern is repeated again and again, beginning with Cain, the first son of Adam and Eve, who after inheriting Satan's nature, murders his younger brother Abel. The satanic forces that led to this murder are the same forces that have inspired Marxist revolutions and Marxist oppression, and which propel critical theories today. They are destructive to their core. As St. Paul described these forces, and I quote, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, end quote. That's from Ephesians 6.12. The good news is that Satan can create nothing himself. He can only pervert and disfigure what God makes. In this lies the hope that satanic ideologies will ultimately be exposed for what they really are and relegated to the dustbin of history. Marxism and critical theories represent the final stage of satanic ideological development in that they so completely embody Satan's atheistic anti-family credo and do so on a global scale. Once the evil nature of Marxism and neo-Marxism are exposed and discredited, they can be replaced by the final stage of an ideology that incorporates a divinely inspired alternative to materialism with a credible promise of a good, just, and peaceful world. The explanations in this book are part of that alternative. End of the chapter.